Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Happy New Year, everybody. In this first episode of 2023, we look at Kevin McCarthy. I can barely say the man's name without laughing. The price of fame and how low can one speaker go? South Carolina's Supreme Court rules the state's constitution includes the right to abortion. The U.S. economy isn't as bad as some have predicted, with the latest jobs numbers telling an interesting story. And why do cities widen highways when it only attracts more vehicles? But first, so glad to hear that Buffalo Bills footballer DeMar Hamlin is making what doctors call a remarkable recovery after suffering a heart attack after making a tackle in last week's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. He's had a breathing tube removed and spoke briefly to his teammates the other day. Let's hope he makes a full and complete recovery. So let's talk about Kevin McCarthy, the once and future king of House Republicans, turned clown prince of House Republicans. He finally was elected speaker after, count him, 15 ballots over five days. He was prevented from ascending to the top job in the House by rebellious far-right members of his own party. It wasn't clear to me exactly what they wanted from him, Maybe it's clear to you, or why a fellow right-wing ideologue was suddenly so repulsive to them. In the end, the only logical explanation is the fact that they wanted to gum up their own chamber from inside their own chamber. Only a far-right lunatic would set out to do that. Such is McCarthy's lust for power that he was willing to give them just about anything they wanted. Little by little, it worked. However, the New York Times describes the late night sessions that dragged him over the finish line as a, quote, spectacle of arm twisting and rancor, end quote. And it's among Republicans, for God's sake, among Republicans. Imagine for a moment what would have happened if outgoing Speaker Nancy Pelosi had taken even five ballots to win the job. Suppose, for example, the Congressional Black Caucus had held her up for their agenda rather than, rather than some far-right gaggle, since you know you can't even really call them a caucus. I, mean, I think they may call themselves the Freedom Caucus, but that's just a joke. Fox, One America, assuming they're still around, Newsmax, and every right-wing site in America would scream from the rooftops that she had no credibility whatsoever. What would they make of a session where there was virtually a physical altercation between Florida Congressman Matt Gates and Mike Rogers of Alabama. McCarthy went mining for GOP diamonds and he ended up with cubic zirconia in the form of Gates and Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. In exchange, McCarthy conceded changes that made it easier, get this, easier to get rid of him. My guess is newsrooms across America are already taking bets on how long he'll actually last. One wonders and one shudders at just what these fools will make their legislative priorities. Will it be Hunter Biden's laptop? They've talked quite a bit about that. My money is on a federal ban on abortion. Won't happen, of course, but at least they can tell their constituents they tried. What else this divided Republican caucus has in mind? 
is best left right where it is in their minds. It took Florida Democrat Maxwell Frost, the youngest new member at 25, to finally be sworn in to utter the pithiest quote of this entire charade. Quote, I'm going to get sworn in at 1 a.m. on Saturday after two members almost got into a physical altercation on the House floor after my 15th vote for Speaker on my fourth day here. Yep, that about sums it up. Up next, South Carolina, of all places, has its highest court rule that the right to abortion is contained in that state's constitution. Surprise, surprise. This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. The South Carolina Constitution provides a right to privacy that, the state's highest court has ruled, includes the right to an abortion. You heard me right. This wasn't New York or California, but a state that had a law limiting abortion to the first six weeks of pregnancy. This is a really big deal, and not just for South Carolinians. Since the U.S. Supreme Court decision gutting Roe v. Wade, pro-choice advocates have filed suit in 19 states seeking to have the right to choose recognized under state constitutions. The South Carolina case was the first test, and it was successful. Here's the provision the court ruled on. Quote, The right of the people to be secure in their, in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures and unreasonable invasions of privacy shall not be violated. End quote. The Republican-dominated legislature in South Carolina may yet try to place further restrictions on abortion, but they have to pay attention to the court's abortion protection. While the ruling only applies to South Carolina, it shines a bright light for advocates in other states to follow. There are already ballot initiatives in Kansas and Michigan, and other states may take that route depending on the wording of their individual constitutions. Interestingly, South Carolina is certainly no bellwether for women's rights. It was more than a half century, a half century late in certifying women's right to vote. A half century after the rest of the country, South Carolina still circumscribed a woman's right to vote. It was the second state, I'm sorry, second to last state to let women serve on juries. In opposing the right to abortion in the state constitution, attorneys for the attorney general and legislature cited a mid-60s overhaul of the constitution that, among other things, allowed literacy tests for voters, and maintained language that forbade interracial marriages. Not one woman was on that committee. Need we say more? Yanking away a woman's right to choose, and that is what to do with their own body, choose what to do with their own body, strikes at a woman's integrity in a way that this society would never think of doing to a man. Hopefully, South Carolina will be the first of many states to strike a blow for women's freedom. While we're on the subject of states and cities, can anyone tell me why certain places are widening their highways and freeways, even though most studies say doing so increases traffic? Now, I know this may seem like a really trifling thing to talk about, but I submit it's not. This is not a phenomenon unique to any one part of the country. 
It's true in L.A. It's true in Houston. It's true in New York. I remember hearing about proposals many years ago to add new tubes to the two tunnels that link New Jersey with New York City. Those proposals never went anywhere. The reason? If you build it, they will come. Yet now New Jersey is talking about building new access roads to one of those tunnels, the Holland. Traffic experts argue that building more capacity would simply add more cars and trucks, making the tunnels as crowded as they'd always been. There's an added factor that wasn't so much there when widening became a thing back in the 60s. Climate change has become something to pay attention to in the 21st century. What researchers have found is that when lanes widen, traffic thins out at first. But as people begin to use their cars more, it goes right back up. In the meantime, while billions are funneled to highways, much less is earmarked for the one thing that can mitigate vehicular traffic. That would be mass transit. Sadly, many highway widening projects are happening in cities and states controlled by Democrats who also prioritize, or say they prioritize, the fight against climate change. One has to ask, is there another way? Maybe the answer is providing incentives for people not to drive their cars, particularly during peak periods. Any way you slice it, widening highways and freeways gives motorists the opposite incentive. You know, living in New York and going back and forth between New York and New Jersey on a pretty regular basis and sitting in traffic going back and forth from New York to New Jersey on a regular basis. I often thought to myself, how many pollutants are spewed out when there, for example, is a 15 minute delay to the George Washington Bridge or a 20 minute delay to the Lincoln Tunnel or a half hour delay to the Holland Tunnel or all three at the same time during the same rush hour. I'm not sure anybody really has uh, tried to quantify those numbers, quantify those pollutants, but I can tell you there are a lot, a lot of people who sit in that kind of traffic and maybe they're not wondering the same thing, but I guarantee you they're sick and tired of sitting up in that traffic. Finally, the latest jobs report is, is causing some economists to say a recession in America may not be as bad as first thought. This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. Anyone not living under a rock knows the American economy has been buffeted by COVID, inflation, and the war in Ukraine. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, the U.S. and Europe have been predicted to fall into recession for a good long while now. Latest jobs figures would seem to be saying it won't be as, as bad, that is, as first thought in the good old USA. Employers added 223,000 new jobs, which, by the way, is the lowest number of new jobs added since Joe Biden became president. It is also in line with what economists had predicted. That's a slowing of growth, which the raising of interest rates by the Federal Reserve was intended to do. Wage increases have also slowed, which is bad news for workers. I hate to see, I don't care what the economic situation, I hate to see stat, stats and data that say 
that wages for workers, or wage increases, I should say, for workers, are slowing down. I believe workers deserve everything they can get. Yet recent trends have seen inflation cool, along with some, not all, but some prices. Unemployment has also ticked back to 3.5%, the lowest level since 1969. We've talked before about how the economy always has political implications, good and or bad. Recent news should have a positive impact on the Biden administration, but there's something else that I think should trouble Democrats. Now, what I'm about to say is purely anecdotal. I want to emphasize that. This is anecdotal stuff. But I get a sense that young people don't think this president has the mental bandwidth to serve a second term. My conclusion, again, is purely anecdotal. But if this belief is widespread among the young electorate, Joe Biden's in for some serious trouble. Let's say for the sake of argument that a large segment of young voters won't vote for Biden because of his age and because, quite frankly, they think he's senile. Contrast his profile with that of Ron DeSantis, should he get the nomination. He's young, vigorous, and although he has no other qualifications to be president, youth might be enough to keep young people at home if it's either him or Biden. Him, they'd stay home because they just don't like his politics. Biden, they'd stay home because he simply is not the guy to carry the nation for the next four years. And in three words, he's too old. Now, you know, I'm not a kid. All right. So don't think I lack sensitivity when it comes to age and when it comes to ageism. I don't see the signs of senility in this president that younger people do. Maybe it's because I've heard him speak over the long term. And some of his gaffes, and remember some of his gaffes, from days gone by. Regardless, I've been around politics long enough to be concerned, even by anecdotal evidence. Here's why. I may have said this story or told this story before, but I want to tell it again because it's instructive. I remember get out the vote efforts that I was involved in with the union I worked for the good people at Local 1199, SEIU. And we were in Philadelphia in 2016. And we were going door to door, asking people to vote for Hillary Clinton. Not that she was the perfect candidate, mind you, but she was the candidate. And I remember seeing and experiencing a very, very sharp divide during that election. Older people, people around my age, even some people younger than me, were enthusiastic Clinton supporters. Knock on doors, of course, I'm with Hillary. You got any literature? Let me show something. I'll, I'll give it to my friends. I'll give it to whoever. Make sure they come out to vote. When it came to younger people, particularly younger people in gentrifying areas of Philadelphia, much less so. I kept hearing over and over and over again, I don't trust Hillary. There's something about her. They don't really had they didn't really have anything to put their finger on, but they just didn't trust her. And by the way, that message was brought back to Hillary Clinton through her people 
with the message that there's a problem in places like Pennsylvania, specifically in problems like Philly, and she needed to go there and speak to the people. She didn't go. She also lost the election. So when I hear young people say, oh man, I can't vote for Joe Biden, he's senile. And on top of that, there's nothing that can change my mind about this. He's too old. And I've heard this recently. I pay attention. I know that it's only a few people, but you know, and I don't talk to every young person in the universe, but I think it ought to be some kind of concern for the administration and going further down the road for the Biden campaign. Now, when you ask some young people who should run in Biden's place, the answers vary. Of course, there's Kamala Harris, but she's not universally beloved, even among young people. Behind her, to use a sports metaphor, is a short bench among the Democrats. Joe Biden, as of right now, says he has every intention of running for re-election. I've said before that the only person who can talk him out of it is his wife, Dr. Jill Biden. If she doesn't think he can withstand the rigors of running and governing, he'll stand down. In the meantime, cautious optimism about the American economy is the watchword of the experts. Whether that translates to the public is quite another story. And it's a story that may well decide Joe Biden's fate.